If you got your Bible with you, I hope you do. Uh, find the book of Acts and find Acts chapter 4. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study through the book of Acts. If this is your first time to Lakeview, welcome to you. Uh, and just know that on Sunday mornings, our, our MO is to study uh, straight through books of the Bible. And this, this school year, it's the book of Acts. And we're, we're essentially trying to take a chapter every week. And we'll, we'll more or less do that, but not, it won't be so neat and tidy every time. It doesn't always work out perfectly that, that you can cover a neat and tidy chapter every time for a couple of reasons at least. Sometimes there's just so much in a chapter that you can't even almost adequately cover everything in it all at one time. And so God's Word is more important than our schedule, so sometimes we just cover a portion of the chapter for that reason, just to give adequate attention to those things that deserve it. And sometimes it's just because of where the chapter divisions fall. They just don't seem to fall in the right place, and it doesn't always make the most sense. And that's kind of what we have here in Acts, between Acts chapter 4 and 5. Last week, we were in Acts 4, but we only looked at verses 1 through 31 because there was a clear theme running through those verses, those, 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 that, that portion of Acts 4. But we left off the last few verses of the chapter, verses 32 to 37, because, and that was intentional because when you read chapter 5, you understand that the, the tail end of chapter 4 goes along with it. it. It clearly is related to it and belongs with it. Uh, so that's the reason why we're going to study Acts chapter 5 today, but I'm asking you to open to Acts 4. <laughs> uh, all right, so on the one hand, when we read this chapter, uh, there's a lot going on. We'll read it in just a minute. There's a lot going on. You have the description at the end of chapter 4 of the church's, the early church's life together. It's a very similar passage to what we had at the end of chapter 2. You have the incredible, coming into chapter 5, the incredible and sort of horrifying story of Ananias and Sapphira, followed by a little passage about signs and wonders being done through the, the apostles and how the church was growing and growing more than it had ever grown before, which is an astonishing statement to make. Um, but in the bulk of the chapter, from 17 to the end, it's going to be about uh, the apostles being arrested again, Peter and John most certainly, maybe some others being arrested again and being on trial again. It's a, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot going on here. But And there's a lot, that being said, that there are some things we could take whole weeks on to study as part of this. But I do think that there's a theme that's running through all these dis, disparate stories. Um, and uh, it ties it all together. And that's what I want to think for a few minutes today. And that is this, the, the uh, if I will, there you go, the fear of God versus the fear of man. Fear of God versus the fear of man. This, when we read it together, you'll see this is sort of a seesaw uh, going back and forth through the whole chapter between those who fear God and those who fear man. Now, again, before we read, the fear of God is something that I've been asked about before. I think pastors get asked about it from time to time. I think we all know what the fear of man is. I think we, we just, knowing from our own hearts, it's not a, a difficult concept to, to, uh, to wrestle through what the fear of man is. I, you know, I want to please man above all things, or I'm, I'm fearful of what somebody might think or what somebody might say or do to me. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of the consequences, uh, the earthly consequences I might face. That's the fear of man. 
But the fear of God, what is it to fear God? What is it to fear God as a believer? What does it mean to fear God? Because Scripture clearly commands it of us, right? A lot. Psalm 34, 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. Fear the Lord, you His saints. So, fearing, fearing God is not just for the unbelieving who could, could and should justly fear, though they recognize it or not, um, the unbelievers should justly fear the coming wrath and judgment of God. That's a fearful thing. Hebrews says it is a fearful, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we can, it's, it's easy to understand the fear of God for those who are not believers, who are in, in the direct path of the coming judgment of God. But this verse says, fear the Lord, you His saints. Right? That, that you are saints who already love the Lord and He loves you. Fear Him. Okay? Moses told the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as they were preparing to go into the promised land. Moses said, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by His name you shall swear. Fear Him, people. Fear Him so that you don't forget Him and fall away and run after other gods. It's in the law. It's in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. You know, Psalms, we've already seen the Psalms, but Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's, it's all through the Old Testament. But it's not just an Old Testament thing. Just one example from the New Testament from Paul writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. He tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? Fear and trembling for what or for whom? Clearly, think about the context of what he had, had just said there in Philippians 2. He's just gotten off of his pen that, that the day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it, it is in light of that glorious God that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling of Him. So the fear of God shows up a lot in Scripture. So it's not surprising that, that Christians who Christians who know, based on what the Bible says, that they've, they've found peace with God through Jesus Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. I've been adopted into the family of God by the grace of God. And I, and I know God as my perfectly compassionate and loving Heavenly Father, and now I'm told to fear Him? What does that mean exactly? Why and in what way? Well, in our chapter in Acts, uh, I think we can arrive at a conception of what that fear is, but it, it doesn't so much define it as it does demonstrate it. I think our chapter doesn't as much define what the fear of God is as it does to demonstrate it. The seriousness of the fear of God and the deadliness of the fear of man. So let's, that said, let's read the passage together and then I'll lay out for you what I want us to see and take away from it. Uh, so if you're open to Acts 4, we'll begin reading in verse 32. We'll read all the way to the end of chapter 5. I know that's a haul. But again, Paul told Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of Scripture so that we will obey. All right? 
Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought that money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his, knowledge, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The, pe the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the, the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak, the, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they, they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. Notice what they were greatly perplexed about, about them. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest 
questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That would be Jesus's. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, they just rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed them were dispersed and came to nothing. After Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But it is of God. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. It seems out of character. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Uh, It is true in everything it teaches and affirms. We can trust your word. For in trusting your word, we trust you. So, Father, I pray that you would Give us a holy reverence for what you're saying to us here. Uh, Capture our attentions with it. Help us to see the importance of it. Give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand the truth. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth and not to be indifferent to it. Give us wills to obey whatever it might lead us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's how I want us to see Uh, this theme here, this theme of the fear of God versus the fear of man. I think uh, it has some pretty obvious scene breaks in it. So from 432 to 511, I want us to see the presence of the fear of God, both in, uh, actually, presence of of it and the lack of it. (laughs) There's a good contrast in these verses uh, in this early church. The presence of the fear of God in this early church. We're going to see it through a clear contrast with Ananias and Sapphira. And then contrasted with that, on into chapter 5, verses 12 to 26, we'll see the power of the fear of man in our hearts, both in the crowd and in the rulers. Right? The power of the fear of man in our hearts. Then in the latter half of the chapter, from 27 to the end, we have clear demonstrations of the product of both fears, what it, what it produces, what these fears produce in us. It's wisdom that we need to hear. So that's where we're going. Let's dive in and think first about the presence of the fear of God. All right, like I told you, the reason that we didn't cover the very end of chapter 4 last week is because it very clearly uh, is connected to the opening story of chapter 5. And there's a clearly stated purpose 
to both of these stories at the end of chapter 4 and the early part of chapter 5. Twice it's explicitly stated in chapter 5, and it's, implicit, it's implied in the early part uh, of chapter 4. So what is it? Let's walk back through the story and, and, and see. All right, so the description of this church at the end of chapter 4, it's a lot like the one in chapter 2 at the very end of it. So for, think back, chapter 2 verse 45 tells us, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We've already been told they, they were like this. Why? Why tell us again? Why tell us essentially the same thing about the church again? I think there's a purpose behind it. So he says very similarly in chapter 4, verse 32, no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, so much so that in verse 34 it says there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold. By the way, just think about what, what that's saying. Don't, let's not just read through that uh, mindlessly or just blithely. Just, they sold houses and lands. They weren't just saying, if I have something you need, here, borrow it, give it back. It wasn't just, here, borrow my wrench. It's like, here, have my house. That's, that's incredible. They sold lands for each other. But there's a reason, I think, that Luke is telling this all over again when he's already said this is what the church was like back in chapter 2. Uh, so much of this, this story at the end of chapter 4 is, re, is, is told again to deliberately transition to the next one. Okay, so Luke zooms in, in, in at the end of chapter 4 on, uh, on, on an important person in the book of Acts. In verse 36, he introduces a major character in the book that is Barnabas. We learn his name is actually Joseph. That's a good uh, trivia a little Bible trivia when you come to trivia night next uh, welcome week. We might ask that question. What was Barnabas' real name? Joseph. Um, he's a Levite. He's a native of the island of Cyprus. He's later going to be one of Paul's missionary companions. He's an important guy. The only reason he's brought up here, though, is to introduce him as a major character, but to highlight that he was one of the many in the early church who were selling houses and lands and bringing the proceeds to those who were in need. Uh, it says in verse 37, he sold a field and brought that money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The reason that's said, though, is, is look, at the, look at the conjunction of deliberate contrast in chapter 5, verse 1. So Barnabas was one who did this, chapter 5, verse 1, but, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and it's going to be a clear contrast with what they do with it, with what Barnabas and the early church the rest of them were doing. What did Ananias and Sapphira do? Well, you, we just read it. They sold the piece of property. And then before they brought the money, they had a conference with one another. And they said, okay, here's, here's the money we got for this. Let's keep this for ourselves. Let's give that, but say this is all of it. Okay. By the way, there was no law given that they had to do this kind of thing. This is stuff that people were doing freely filled with the Spirit, with the love of Christ in their heart. There was no law compelling them to give all of it. They weren't breaking a law by only giving part of it. What they did wrong was just lie about it. What good reason would they have? to say? They could give a generous amount and say, here, we want to give this, and everything would have been hunky-dory. Why say, we got this, let's, let's give this, and say that it's all of it, right? Well, uh, they do this. And then Peter confronts them about it. 
And he's more than clear that what the, the main issue is not that he lied to them and that they lied to everybody else in the church. What he says in verse 3 is, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Well, what's so bad about that? Well, he says at the end of verse 4, when you did that, you lied to God. You didn't lie to, lie to men, but to God. So, by the way, the Holy Spirit is God. That's a clear statement that the Holy Spirit is God. At which point, Peter calls down the curse of God upon Ananias in verse 5, and he falls down dead on the spot. This was a clear act of God's judgment on Ananias for his lie. I mean, does it mean that God casts every liar down like this as soon as they tell a lie? No, but it tells you he could. It tells you he could. It says in verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. No ceremony, no mourning. Three hours later, Sapphira has no idea this happened. Sapphira comes in, keeps, she keeps to the dishonest story she and her husband concocted, not knowing he was already dead. Same happens to her. She falls down dead. The same young men bury her next to her husband. Right. I don't think this, by the way, means that Ananias, I don't know, I'm not God, but I don't know that it necessarily means that Ananias and Sapphira went to hell. It just means that they died here and now. You know, could be that they, they were total unbelievers, but at the very least, they showed a shocking lack of fear of God. And they might have been believers. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, in the whole Lord's, Lord's Supper passage, that some had fallen asleep because of their disobedience. That just means they had died. They suffered a temporal judgment here and now. But what does, this, what does the text specifically say each time that that happened, at the end of verse uh, 5, it says, And great fear came upon all who heard it. Now in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Great fear. Great fear. There's a deep contrast on here on the whole, whole church community, including Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. It twice explicitly says that the fear of God was, was very present in the church in these early days. And the, the events of Ananias and Sapphira probably just made the depth of their fear of God even deeper. And I would argue that it's implied earlier in chapter 4, when they, you remember at the tail end of last week's passage, when they prayed for boldness before the rulers, they threatened us, Lord, give us boldness to continue speaking. And God filled them with the Holy Spirit and made them bold, which is another way of saying he made them to where their fear of him was greater than their fear of other men. And in these, so in these opening verses, there was a strong presence of the, of the fear of God among them. A, a fear that Ananias and Sapphira clearly lacked. But let's just pause here and say, okay, these things happen. What, is at least, what does that at least teach you about what the fear of God is? Again, it's more description than definition, but what can you glean about the fear of God just from these events? At the very least, it, it teaches you that it's a strong awareness of His presence. That's precisely what Ananias and Sapphira lacked. They, they took the money, they made a scheme, they only gave part of it, they lied, but they thought they were only lying to men. They had a shocking uh, lack of awareness of the presence of God. It was a shock to them when Peter said, when you lied to, to us, you weren't lying to us, you were lying to God, He's here. And they fell down dead. So there's a sense of his, the awareness of the presence of God in your life and a sense of awe and respect 
and trembling in your heart for His majesty and His power and His sovereign lordship. You can do that even as a child of God, knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation, right, for your sins. You're totally reconciled to God. He is, you don't just know Him, but He knows you. And, and He loves you with an everlasting love, unconditional love. There's nothing in what I just said that precludes you from trembling at His majesty and being fully aware of His holy presence. Nothing in that that conflicts. That's what Ananias and Sapphira lacked. Hence, they, they, they thought they were merely lying to Peter. We can pull the wool over their eyes. But what the rest of the church had was that strong sense of awe and reverence of the Lord and His presence among them. Twice described as great fear. We'll say more in a minute about what effect this healthy fear uh, had among them. But for now, I just want to note the obvious emphasis that the fear of God was great and it was present among them. The church was marked by a lot of things, generosity, humility, zeal. But among them, fear of God. And I think this, this passage then shifts its emphasis. It shifts to those outside the church, both to the ordinary people and to the rulers of the people and i think when it when it makes that shift it shifts to the power of the fear of man look at how look at how the people he describes the people generally in verses 12 to 14 it says now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostle and they were all together in solomon's portico none of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's an odd mix of thoughts at first glance. The rest were doing one thing, but all the more, the people were doing something else. I think it makes a little sense when you look at it a little closer. First of all, it's amazing that it actually says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. More than ever. It's, it's, it's astonishing because when you read chapter 2 and 3,000 were saved in a day and the last words of that same chapter was that, was that day by day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. And then you come to chapter 4 and hundreds if not thousands more were saved at the pre preaching of Peter and John. And now in chapter 5, even with all that, now more than ever people were coming. More than ever. But I want to draw your attention to that phrase there in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Commentators debate on how to take that. The question debated is, why? Why did a lot of the people, even though they held the Christians in high esteem, why did they not dare join them? And isn't that an interesting way of saying it? Not just that they decided not to. It's not just that they didn't just leave it at all the people held them at high esteem. It says they didn't dare join them. Different suggestions have been made about what that means. Maybe. What did they fear? That's the question. They didn't dare join them. That implies a fear in their hearts. What did they fear? Did they fear the signs and wonders that were being done by the hands of the apostles, that would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? Especially if they had never seen a moving picture and seen 
special effects of any kind to see a lame man get up and walk around, that'd be kind of scary. Maybe that's why they didn't maybe that's why they didn't dare join. It was just kind of that's just kind of weird. Or maybe they feared what had just happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to they're doing great things, but if I join them, I might drop dead too. I don't know. I think there's another option that here likely here fits not only this story but the rest of the context of Acts. And it's that phrase that appears right before that one that's highlighted there. Right? It says, right before it says, none of them dared join, it says, it says, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. They were all together in Solomon's portico. Which, which was what? The Solomon's portico was an was a area in the outer court of the temple. It's where a lot of people gathered uh, to meet. Why is that important? Well, we've come across Solomon's portico already in Acts. You remember what's already happened once in the, in the book of Acts in Solomon's portico? That's where, the Acts of, that's where the events of Acts 3 and 4 happened. That's where Peter and John had just recently been arrested. They had recently just been arrested in Solomon's, right there in front of everybody, in Solomon's portico. Not only that, this had a reputation for this kind of thing. Just, just make a note of it. In John chapter 10, this is where Jesus was when they tried to pick up stones and stone him. Jesus was standing there in Solomon's portico. So clearly, that's where a lot of people met, but clearly it's a place that the authorities kept an eye on. Right? So, I think it's noteworthy that it specifically says uh, that they were meeting in this place. Because I, I think when it says none of the rest dared join them, I, I read it as saying this was a dangerous place to be associated with the Christians. I like them, but I don't want any trouble. I like them, but I, I fear the rulers. I just saw some of their guys get arrested. I remember just a few months ago that they tried to stone this guy, Jesus, in this, in this very place. Well, as it turns out, they probably felt a bit justified because in verse 18, they do arrest Peter and John again in this same place. They very publicly put them in prison to show their authority. So the people feared the rulers, but now notice what happens. The people, the, the, the people had fear of man in their hearts. They feared the, feared the rulers, but now look at what happens. Right? Even these rulers, it appears, were, were ruled by a fear of man that was greater than God. <clears throat> Remember how this plays out. They very publicly put them in prison, but while they were in prison, an angel let them out. <laughs> an angel let them out of prison in the middle of the night, apparently blinding the guards to what was happening. Door opens, they walk out, door closes back, seals back, guards are still standing there thinking somebody's inside. Crazy. So much so that when the rulers come to get these guys out of prison in the morning to interrogate them, when they opened it up, they expected, to be there, expected them to be there, but they were gone. No longer there. And the, the, the guards were like, I don't know what happened. They were here when I came on duty. They're not here now. I never saw the door open. What happened? Now, what would you do? What would you do if, if you were one of those rulers? How in the world would you explain that? I mean, that would scare me to death. Like verse 24 says, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. Their, their focus was still on Peter and John. They weren't 
for a moment thinking God might have done this. Right? Their eyes were completely on earthly men. How, you know, there was no fear of God before their eyes, and they still need to get their prisoners back. When they found out that, hey, they're, they're, <laughs> they're already in the temple again preaching, uh, as they had been threatened and instructed not to do, they went out to re-arrest them. But this time it was a little different. Why? Look at verse 26. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of whom? Of being stoned by the people. While the people feared the rulers, the rulers feared the people. Isn't that interesting? While the people feared the rulers, the rulers feared the people. So much so that when they went back to rearrest them, they had to ask nicely, would you come with us? The hilarious thing to me is that apparently the apostles were like, sure. <laughs> More on that in a minute. Bottom line here is, fear of man is a powerful thing. How so? Think, think, think people and rulers. Think if you're the people. Think if you were witnessing with your own eyes the things that God was doing in this church. And think about what those things were. Part of you wanted to join them, but you didn't. You didn't dare. It has to be a powerful reason. Fear of man. That's, that's a powerful reason. Now think about from the perspective of the rulers. You locked them in prison. Verse 23 says it was securely locked. And guards were standing at the door. It makes you think about the tomb at the end of the Gospels. Go and make it as secure as you can. Jesus still walked out of there. You, you made it secure. You set guards and you wake up the next morning and they're not there. When you go to get them, they're already over there preaching. And the door is still locked. You, and you know they were furious. A few verses later in verse 33, says they, I want, they wanted to kill him. It would have to be a pretty strong reason in your heart to go up to them in the crowd and say, would you please come with us when you really you wanted to kill them? Why, what would cause you to be nice? Fear of man. Fear of man is a powerful thing in our heart. It caused both sets of people, the crowd and the rulers, to do things they didn't want to do on some level. Who we fear most is our master. It, and it, it'll, it'll most often dictate what we do, what we choose, and why. And that's the thing. Whichever feel, fear it is that rules us, it will have noticeable effects in our lives. We see that here in the latter part of the chapter. We don't have a, a lot of time to spend here. But I just want you to notice the effects that these fears, both of these fears, had on these different groups of people. The apostles who feared the Lord and the rulers who feared man and have no fear of God before their eyes. I just want to point out one consequence of this in the, in the rulers that I think is universally true. What did the fear of man produce in the rulers here? And here's what it produced that I think is also universally true. It produced in them irrational disobedience. The fear of man will produce in you irrational disobedience. How do we see that? Well, they, they re-arrested the apostles. Um, not really, if they went freely. Um, but they interrogated them. And at some point in, that con uh, in, in the conversation, one of them wisely spoke up, Gamaliel. You might have heard his name. He was the guy who was Paul's teacher before he became a believer. When Paul was a Pharisee, Gamaliel was his teacher. And Gamaliel speaks up. 
And he reasons somewhat sensibly. He basically says, "Can you just guys before I know you want to kill him, but just hear me out. Do you remember like a few months ago this this guy, he had a following of people, but when he died, his guys just kind of dispersed. And then after him it was another guy and he took some people away, but then he died and they dispersed. Both of those came to nothing. And so he says very literally, it might be that kind of deal here. Right? If he says he says in verse 38, in the present case, if this, is the, if this is what's going on, keep away from these men and leave them alone. That's his, that's his advice to them. Just keep away from them. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. If it's, if it's not of God, the thing will fizzle out. Nothing will come of it. But a secondary reason that they're supposed to leave them alone is if it is of God, you're opposing God. So my advice, leave them alone. And it says, at the end of verse 39, so they took his advice. What was his advice? Leave them alone. Okay, what do they do? They beat them. They beat them. And tell them not to, and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. That's not really leaving them alone. Gosh, let them go and see what happens. Yeah, but let me beat them first. Gosh, they, they asked him nicely. Isn't it funny? They at, went, back in verse 26, they asked him nicely when they were in front of all the people. But when they were behind closed, closed doors, they beat them mercilessly. They didn't care if they were opposing God. They had no fear of God at all in their eyes, only man. They were told that if they, if they mistreated them and opposed them, they would be opposing God. Oh, yeah, you're right. And they beat them anyway. It's irrational. That's what the fear of man produces in us, irrational disobedience. But for the apostles who feared God above all else, the same set of circumstances produced something entirely different in them. For one... I believe it gave them clear sight. What do I mean by that? When, when they were approached by these guys again and said, would you come with us? They went. Why would they? Well, the last time they went with them, an angel let them out. They, God honored them, and, 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 and his, his power was greater than their power. They can make it secure. They can lock it. They can put guards. But I don't have anything to worry about. They saw the situation clearly. The choice wasn't difficult. When we fear God, things get clearer. That's just the truth. For another, the fear of God produced an embold obedience. In verse 28, the rulers want to know, why didn't you take our advice? Why didn't you do what we said back in the last chapter? Why, we told you not to, to tell people about Jesus, and yet you filled this whole city with this teaching. Why didn't you obey us? Well, the first time, back in chapter 4, when they said, when they charged them, Peter said in chapter 4, verse 19 to 20, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So the first time they were arrested, they said, well, here's the deal. We can either obey you or God. We'll let you decide who we ought to obey. But now when they're standing before them in chapter 5, apparently uh, Peter and John realize these guys are not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so they just say, we must obey God rather than men. 
Let me just spell it out for you. There was no more, you decide what's right. It was now, I'll tell you what's right. I must obey God. They feared God more than they feared those rulers at all, and it gave them boldness in their obedience. But finally, it produced in them joyful obedience. When, when after they were irrationally beaten for their faith, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. But notice what it says specifically in verse 41. It says specifically in verse 41 that they were, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name dishonor not just suffer physically they suffered dishonor for the name they counted their own reputations of less importance which is fearing god more than man loving your own reputation more is fearing man but they rejoiced in it and they didn't stop at all teaching and preaching jesus as the christ the fear of man will cause you to walk in irrational disobedience to the lord but walking in the fear of God, which means walking in reverent awe of His majesty and power and sovereign lordship over your life and over all things, will cause you to see your purpose clearly, to walk in bold obedience, joyfully in perseverance. Let's pray.